All right, hello everyone, welcome back. I'm Chris, we're listening to Into the Cauldron, and I'm joined today by a guest who I am so excited to talk to. I, I find his work really, really inspiring, uh, Samuel David. And Samuel is uh, a Mesopotamian polytheist, and you may know him from, uh, well, because his book, uh, The Muzid, or The Red Shepherd, a new image of the Muzid just got released uh, with Anthema, or you may have read the previous one, uh, Robin Ring, but he focuses a lot on, on Mesopotamian mysteries. He is a writer, an educator, uh, and all these amazing things. And we're going to have, I'm sure, what I'm sure is to be uh, an incredible discussion about the Mesopotamian mysteries. So uh, Samuel, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to be here. Wow, I'm I'm so excited to talk to you. We, we were just talking a little bit before um, we jumped on here or hit record, and and I, it's going to be so good. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, so, Samuel, for uh, people who either don't have your book yet or aren't sort of familiar with your your work in general, uh, you work a lot with sort of the Mesopotamian systems and and Sumerian systems and this kind of thing. Um, but how would you kind of introduce yourself and your work and things like that for people who haven't heard you before? Wow, that's a it's a huge question. question. That's a huge question. So let me try and condense it down to 280 characters. It'll make things easier. Sure. <laughs> I am a polytheist of the Mesopotamian variety. I used to identify as a reconstructionist. However, as we study continuation of cult and look to history, it's difficult to narrow things down to one specific period in time to reconstruct. And let's face it, sometimes reconstruction tends to veer into reenactment and reenactment unfortunately does not, um, does not carry the same spiritual spark, if you will. So that's my, my spiritual interest in a nutshell. As far as academic interests or scholarly interests, that's largely, in fact, wholly derived from academic material, uh, not just the, the old guard materials, such as the, the work of Thorkild uh, Jakobsen, who I had previously mispronounced numerous times as Jacobson, and I was recently educated on the pronunciation of the last name. But uh, academics like Thorkild Jakobsen, academics such as Benjamin Foster, they are the, the go-tos, if you will, as far as my academic pursuits are concerned. And of course, I have members in my own spiritual community who are both spiritually oriented and minded, as well as academically oriented and minded. In fact, one of my friends who I share a great deal of material with, and we spend far too much time communicating with well into the night, is uh, Steffi Von Scott, who's actually an ancient Near Eastern academic and researcher who has been in university for as long as i've known him so <laughs> that elusive phd <laughs> mm, petrol phd i'm i'm on the same i'm on the same unfortunate journey i assure you but <laughs> yeah um no it sounds incredible so how do you i guess i'll ask you the same question i, I often ask some of the more like academic style practitioners how do you generally balance the two because it, it's a very kind of fine line, I think, isn't it? Where you kind of have this, like, we want to stay truthful to academic sources. We want to stay truthful to kind of historical sources because these things, you know, cultures, periods, like you said, they evolve. It's very difficult to kind of focus on any one particular period. 
Um, so like what kind of, so do you take in general when you're approaching it, I guess from a practitioner's point of view, do you take a, a particular period or do you just take an overview of Mesopotamian magic more generally? I take a, an overview in my, in my book, Rod and Ring. I had initially gone into it from a Sumerian standpoint, but then as I, as I became more, more informed as far as the practical matter goes, it became, I don't want to say a pastiche. It was more or less a syncretism of Sumerian, Babylonian, Akkadian, and later Assyrian iterations of the spiritual current. Hmm. Yeah, because like, I, th I think also like when you look at just the landscape of, you know, even the Bronze Age in general in, in Mesopotamia, that's kind of what was happening as well. Even, even among those cultures, they were sharing a lot of this stuff. A lot of the beliefs were shared among these cultures like we have you know even if you're looking at things like um i don't know the, the, like the assyrian god assured for example was, was only worshipped in like i think it's like a card or somewhere like that isn't it so like you do have regional specific deities things like that but right. on the whole there are masks and variations and things like that over across you know things even in my own work i've done um southern levantine masks of the muzid as well which are very they're like they yeah they clearly take from sumerian sources but they're putting their own flavor on them they have their own iconography and it's a little bit different right. so, but these things are you know i guess it, it's a part of a wider discussion of exactly how people experience gods and how people approach deities and the mysteries in, in, in general right but there's there are so many masks to it and you can approach mm -hmm. it from so many different angles especially even in, in the modern day kind of thing so let's let's talk about that a little bit so how as a modern practitioner do you begin kind of approaching the Mesopotamian mysteries? <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a very dense question. I'm mm. you're you're throwing dense questions at me one right after the other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's I, I want to say it's easy, but at the same time, it's difficult because again, we look at continuation of cult and we look at the original if if we were to solely focus on the source material. We look at Demuzid or Demuzi as a pastoral figure who in his earliest incarnations was a shepherd and he has three death myths that predate the descent of Inanna by several centuries. So we have the archetypal figure, the, the youthful figure, the, the figure who has not yet married or perhaps is still courting his, his intended bride. So we have this figure who is either killed by bandits, conscripted by mercenaries from foreign lands, or in one instance is, of course, dragged into the underworld by demons yeah. so there's there's that iteration there's that incarnation and then there's the incarnation of demuzid when he is conflated with another god a god from lagash or lagash whose name is ama ashum galana which it's quite a mouthful there and that deity was identified with the date palm harvest and was a martial deity. So we have the the pastoral shepherd who dies before his time, dies before he is the before he takes on the role as a father. Then we move on, of course, to his his agricultural aspect. And in that aspect, not only is he the 
the god of the date palm. He's also a, again, a martial deity, but he's also a king and is more, I, I, would, I would like to venture and say he is more realized as a figure instead of merely a one-dimensional pastoral deity or pastoral figure who is in many cases likely not even a deity mm. at that point, uh, at least in, in the way he's conceived, just based on my own research and based on the general academic consensus, he started as a youth who is human or was, and it's likely that he didn't become conceived as, as a divine being until much later. And we, we see instances of this in the case of the divine child who, after an untimely death, uh, achieves apotheosis and is essentially deified by the, the local cult who, who mourns the child's untimely death. Mm. And of course, later we see iterations of hero worship and the worship of divine kings who also achieve apotheosis and death. So we have this, this very layered, this, this diverse view and this, this tapestry of, you know, I, I could just keep, keep using yeah. metaphor after metaphor, but <laughs> it's, it's incredibly complex as to how this deity evolved and and how their their cult flourished and took on new iterations from from day to day to century to century and throughout the millennium it it just it's incredible yeah because i think you, you touched on something there about, about sort of the elevator uh, sort of the, the worship or the elevation of the divine king and i think from what i remember what I, I was doing some sort of precursor reading even for my thesis a few years ago so correct me if i'm wrong i may be outdated <laughs> um but didn't i think some of the aren't some of the earliest attestations of the muzi actually in uh or as an antediluvian king in the king lists i think because he appears as a like a human king isn't it like a king of uh like i think he appears as a king of uruk at one point isn't he yes there are two kings there's the king of uruk who is identified as the fisherman and then there's demuzid of bad tabira which is also known as the city of the smiths so we have these preposterously long reigns let's let's be real yeah. <laughs> which no, 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 that's like going down the whole ancient aliens route yeah we don't we don't we, talk about that yeah, this, this is the zachariah sitchin free zone okay exactly exactly so we have these preposterously long periods of time which historians still to this day academics linguists we there's there's still this difficulty in determining the actual length and what's interesting is we have to look at how time was measured because we come to a point where year one begins with the institution of any particular ruler so right. who's who's to say how they they conceive time in that regard but back to back to my point we have two demuzids in the historical kings list we have demuzid of bad tabira and then we have demuzid of uruk who was the fisherman right okay yeah because he like he is again i think demuzid is as a figure um, again are we are we clear on on which demuzid is is kind of the one that eventually becomes the deity later on or is it still kind of in question 
I think that's largely in question. And in fact, and I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but the individual that that was my advisor as far as the Sumerian transliterations goes, he and I have discussed this at great length as well. It is likely that Demuzid or Demuzi was not just a figure in myth or in various erotic compositions. It is likely that his name itself was an epithet. And what's interesting is we see a lot of figures in the ancient Near East who share many epithets. In fact, he shares epithets with Nergal, which most would think that's rather that's rather diametrically opposed to what his cult is is all about but they both share names that pertain to their roles in the netherworld or the underworld they share names that pertain to them as figures in the land of the living upon the steppe so we take his name and its meaning as demuzid being the good son the legitimate son the righteous son and if we if we look at how that name figures into the sacred marriage ceremony it's likely that that epithet is used by kings not so much in the ceremonial sense but perhaps even in a reinal sense so not only gods or not only kings but also gods because if we look at his erotic poetry where he is mentioned of course with Inanna or with Ishtar when we consider his his Akkadian or Semitic incarnation we have other names that are ascribed to him we have the god Lulal or mm. the honey man if you will and then of course we have the god that I mentioned earlier with the mouthful Ama yeah, <laughs> something <laughs> yeah so it, it seems Almost, almost like like Demuzi is is this like archetypal figure who appears in essentially kind of every every kind of literary uh, sort of innovation essentially like yes. in erotic poetry when which is usually associated with the Nana, and I think the, the thing that's coming to me uh, right away I think or, or the first thing I kind of want to open this up and discuss and I think this I think this is if I'm if I'm thinking rightly this is kind of what your book uh, hopes to accomplish the perception of Demuzi. Like up until this point, has almost been as a very two-dimensional figure. Like, mm -hmm. like the most popular version of him is in Inanna's Descent, where he's kind of just right. carried with by Gala demons because Inanna kind of comes along and sees him, you know, <laughs> either sitting on her throne, being entertained, or that resting under a tree, or whatever it is. And he's like, yeah, he hasn't mourned enough. Take him away, right? Yeah. And then he's kind of he kind of just disappears, and he just kind of becomes this liminal underworld deity. But actually, there is this entire mythic narrative, and, mm -hmm. and he, even just in general literary narratives that appear in magical texts, in can incantations, in erotic poetry, that it really kind of fletches him out as as a, a, a much deeper figure than just appearing in the the Babylon in um, the Inanna epics, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So how how do we begin, I guess, to I I, I guess to, to use the title of your book, how do we begin approaching a new a new image of Debuza then? How do we like synthesize all of this into something we can actually make into an archetype or, or connect with so the the emphasis of the book in the first part presents him in the mythical narratives 
at least as far as as what we have to to draw from based on what's readily translated and readily available so i've taken in fact let me grab my copy that's yeah. so conveniently placed right here oh, yeah <laughs> so what a, what a coincidence indeed so in looking at the the texts that i laboriously composed and these are all derived from source material the only composition that is not uh, copied word for word if you will or adapted word for word is a lacuna myth that essentially posits the role of demuzid in in terms of paternity so we have the apocryphal myth that seeks to establish who his father is because in in many myths there's references to him being the quote-unquote shepherd of on on being the father of the gods we have him described as the friend of enlil who is the chief of the gods and then, of course, in certain texts, the the erotic poems where he's featured with Inanna, he makes an explicit reference to being the son of Enki. Mm -hmm. And that goes on to elaborate upon his role, which is explored in the later part of the book, where we look at his role in magic and in exorcism. And that specifically, you know, again, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but oh, we can, we can open it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a natural direction, I guess. Like, oh, there we go. Next question of like, how does the Muzi feature into incantations and magic? But... So we we find that evolution taking place in the old Babylonian period. And what's interesting is when we present the word Sumerian and, you know, coupled with the logogram or the cuneiform word, oh. the language, if you will, we have this idea that, you know, in, in the ancient Near East, several millennia ago, there, there was this pastoral people, but that language or those logograms that were used, that cuneiform script was taken by the Akkadian people who assimilated or rather <laughs> let's let's be real they colonized the area sure. yeah <laughs> and the sumerian people were assimilated into their population and in order to smooth racial tensions and and cultural tensions you know they adopted sumerian right. as the lingua franca so taking that even further we can thank the babylonians for codifying everything Mm -hmm. that we have and composing these myths and these liturgical compositions and these these uh, ritual texts which I referred to numerous times in in putting this work together and in fact a lot of the material that is in this book was initially intended for Rod and Ring however the scope of that material in hindsight was way beyond the scope of of the Maybe initiatory yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's, it, I, I suppose it is again. Even now, like when, now we're talking about it, it's it's a huge thing. So how do you even begin to synthesize that into yeah. A, yeah. a book that someone can, you know, especially if if it's meant to be an initiatory book, right? If someone mm -hmm. who's, 
who is maybe not familiar with Mesopotamian mysteries, how do how do they be, even begin to approach it? You know, it's, <laughs> it's a huge, huge question because you're you're synthesizing what is essentially you know one of, if not the most ancient civilization on earth. You know, like but but we're synthesizing this entire thing. It's 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 a monumental task. It really is, I think. Um, so, I mean, how, what was your? I, I guess just what was your process? I guess like in in how you were approaching. I mean, you I assume you've been. A devotee of kind of Mesopotamian mysteries even before publishing a lot of this mm-hmm. kind of stuff was I, I guess it's built from your own personal practice and academic research Correct. prior to publishing and things like that right so how has your personal practice kind of shifted in in the process of, of sort of codifying all of this and publishing it as a book <laughs> what's interesting is in the beginning when I was fleshing out my my practice and trying to figure out you know, my, my head from a hole in the ground, if you will. (laughs) I was referring to a lot of outdated material because as I've mentioned in numerous interviews, you can't just go to the occult section or the alternative spirituality section and pick up a book about Mesopotamian spirituality as, as readily as you could books about uh, Norse heathenry or Norse uh, reconstruction, Kemetic religion and and reconstruction. So I was at a loss and my my spiritual growth, if you will, was, I don't want to say stagnant, but it kind of plateaued. Mm. And I started looking elsewhere and eventually found Simon's Necronomicon, which many people balk at. However, however, uh, aside from the Lovecraftian elements and and some of the the chaos magic, I guess you could say, that's that's added to the text. There is a great deal of material in there that is drawn from historical Mesopotamian sources. So as time went on, I'm piecemeal gathering these things together and completely unaware that there are other people out there who are likewise looking for community. And so one thing led to another and I'm interacting with people on Facebook and, and Reddit. And the next thing I know, I'm, you know, ushered into this online community and have met many of these individuals in person and, and participated in community ritual. And it's, it's been, I, I feel like ever since that happened and and I actually took the step to step outside or step away from the comfort of a keyboard, if you will, mm. and meet these people in person, it's like I I can't even begin to describe what it was like. It, I, it's, it's almost like just being pushed down a hill and slowly gaining momentum from there. Yeah. Um, and in fact, at one point, um, over 20 individuals gathered together to consecrate the temple, which I am now the, the head of. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was quite an interesting development. And so from there, I've you know had opportunities to present at local events, national events, international events, and preach the good word of the Mesopotamian polytheist spiritual current. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, and that's the that, that temple you mentioned. That's the the temple of Sam Sangamon, isn't it? Or Sangamon? Yes, correct. Yeah. Uh, so, so, is, so is, is, like, like, I guess we can talk about this a little bit. Is is that I, I guess like a fully functioning like Mesopotamian 
like in-person mystery tradition or like a, a fully functioning mm -hmm. temple or like how, yeah. how does that how does that kind of how does that work so it's an initiatory tradition as well as a fully functioning temple it's very small of course because oh. you know it's in a room in my own home but it's solely <laughs> devoted to that purpose it's not just a catch-all uh room in in the back corner it's yeah. got a temple set up and and everything shrines to the various deities that are venerated and yeah it's pretty yeah. wild they travel with me when i go some when i go places so okay so they, like, I, keeping I guess, it historical yeah this so this this isn't another interesting question because I, I guess and and i guess we can kind of talk about the mechanics of, of mesopotamian or like sumerian magic in general because my, most of my background is in in Egyptian stuff and, and in Greek stuff for the most mm -hmm. part. I'm not as familiar with Mesopotamian stuff outside of maybe Babylonian astral magic and the Babylonian astrology and things like that. So in terms of, I guess, when we're getting into sort of practical worship and devotional practice and things like that, what is the general kind of characteristic of the magic? Are we, are we talking kind of statues and venerations and, and what, like offerings to statues and things? I, I, is there like a parallel with like the Egyptian opening of the mouth? Because like if you look at things like Hermetica, we have statue animation and things and, and statues are animated in the temples i mean is, is there kind of mesopotamian parallels to that in, in the yes book? yes yeah. absolutely so whereas in in egypt you have the opening of the mouth in mesopotamia you have the washing of the mouth okay. so the the elements are are quite similar the deities themselves their idols are believed to or historically believed to house the deity it was it wasn't just the representation of the deity on earth it was the deity it was treated as a living breathing thing now of course to keep things practical <laughs> i'm not going to consider the effigies that i've made as the the living embodiment of the deity on earth because cool. you know yeah <laughs> that, when, that... when you stuff them into a suitcase it's probably not the best, best no thing. it's not so i've in fact i'm looking at at one of the effigies now uh which is actually demuzid because during the 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 production of the book and everything i've made sure that he is uh front and center so i can give him that daily acknowledgement but the images that i've made are life-sized masks if you will that have been uh, ritually imbued with the quote-unquote animating spark if you will and they are to serve as the representations of the gods their uh, focal points in ritual focal points in in ceremonial and even in devotional rites that i perform so yeah that's that's amazing so how do we, I guess another part of this question, um, it's a very kind of popular discussion that ends up happening in, in occultism in general and, and magical practices about kind of how we determine sacred space and, and whether we're using circles and things like that. And we have some variants of like magic circles and things that delineate sacred space in, in Egyptian sources and things like that. Um, but there are arguments that even some of the circles that we find in things like the Greek magical papyri and, and the Demotic ritual manuals, that they come from Sumerian sources. I think I think the word for it is um, zisuru, something like mm -hmm. that. It's, yes. it's a circle of cornflour or something like that. And I think correct. it's, from what I remember, it's used in, I think it's the Maklu incantation texts, right? Which is like the, uh, they're like exorcism rituals for the most part. Yes. Right? Sprinkled around the bed or something like that, isn't it? And 
you have different forms of substance, like different kinds of flour to, for different gods, mm-hmm. whether it's in Saba or Enki or anything like that. So correct. You do you use? I guess we can talk about this in general, but like, do you use circles like that in in your practice when you're making sacred space, or is it something else? If I'm doing a, a public ritual, or if I'm doing one that has you know a, a more complex setup as opposed to you know just a, a general devotional ritual then yes i'll i'll use flour and of course historically there were three types of flour that were used um one of them was associated with with necromantic rites and you know the banishing of sorcerers unfortunately some of the terms are difficult to translate because you know we don't know specifically the ins and outs of of everything but in this day and age where you know flour is processed and bleached and you know, we, we have all of these different methods of purifying it. Um, you know, it, it could be any type of flour. Um, my personal choice is to use barley flour and to mix it with water that's consecrated for the purpose. And in fact, the ritual that was performed to consecrate the temple and, and establish this temple, uh, there was a massive circle, <laughs> a massive circle of uh, of flour that was used and mixed with water and you know we we formed this beautiful circle of of dough and uh after the ritual i'm sure that that there were many thankful birds that consumed those bits of dough that were left over yeah well it's also it's interesting you like i'm having things like pop off from my flashes in my mind now of things i've just remembered and read like whether it's about the movie or anything else but because isn't there a variant of like or part of the Demuzi myth. I think it even appears in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where like Enki or somebody transforms him into a, a bird. Like it's like an isn't it like an Alalu bird or something like that, like a broken wing. So that's in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and what happens is Ishtar or Inanna. In mm-hmm. in fact, in in this iteration of the myth, it is Ishtar because it's composed by Babylonian scribes. But Ishtar takes a liking to Gilgamesh because who wouldn't um he is said to be the you know the epitome of of human perfection on earth of course he's also part deity Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's another story in and of itself but (laughs) um but Gilgamesh rebuffs Ishtar's advances because he knows that anybody that she lays eyes on and uh develops quote-unquote feelings for tends to meet a bad end so in this case he refers to demuzid or temuts as the alalu bird whose wing was broken and you know daily cries you know my wing my wing in the forest so we have that and then of course we have demuzid transformed into to other creatures but yeah to your point yeah i i i, re- I remember because there, there are other variants of it where i think um i don't know if it's in the the, the return of the muzid or one of the other myth or mythic narratives around him where he doesn't get immediately captured by the gala demons like he goes to enlil enki or something and, and they help him out by hiding him or transforming him into a gazelle or something like that but yeah gets, yeah he appeals to utu or shamash who is the he's solar the, deity and Inanna's brother twin brother and in one iteration of the myth he's transformed into a gazelle and in another iteration of the myth he's transformed into a serpent 
Um, it's, it's known as a Sakal serpent. And what's interesting there is that type of creature has more divine aspect or more divine connotation. So if we were to translate it and take it, take that context into consideration, it's likely that he would have been transformed, not, not just into a tiny snake. He would have been transformed into a basilisk who flies over the mountains. So yeah, there's, there's that interesting parallel in, in one uh, liturgical text actually, where he's described as a dragon who glides over mountains. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so are there, is he kind of is he described differently or are there i guess different masks and images of the music depending on the genre of the, of the literature so like like is he absolutely in ways in erotic poetry and is that different to how he's uh referred to in like exorcism rites for example yes yes absolutely so in erotic poetry he's you know ascribed more agricultural uh attributes so in in some compositions he's referred to as a farmer. In fact, uh, one of the spicier narratives is Inanna praising his virtues and uh, basically saying to uh, to Demuzid, uh, more or less, "Plow my vulva like yeah. you would it's, it's, a, it's a, a fertile it's a field." One, I think actually, yeah, mm-hmm. I remember it's like when, um, like, it, it doesn't it even eventually form part of like Inanna's descent where when she comes back and sends him off to the underworld she eventually just gets like she regrets it because she gets lonely and then like it's part of that it's part of that whole tradition where it's like she's lonely because no one's like plowing her <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I don't know, regretting her whole decision because there's nothing there right yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's crazy um it's funny yeah but so it, it seems like this this image of him as as kind of the shepherd is is, is kind of i almost want to say the most popular version um like it, it, it's a, a very common version that comes up like mm-hmm. is, is, is the shepherd narrative i guess one of the older ones that has remained con- so consistent or it yes it appears that that is the most consistent iteration and of course if we look at the the iconography of the shepherd and its relation to kingship in mesopotamia it was believed that the king was the symbolic shepherd of the people the people were sheep and the city was the sheepfold and you know it's it's pretty self-explanatory from there (laughs) and of course we have we have uh we have aspects of this in in the early Jewish texts that would then become the the Old Testament. We have aspects of this with the um, the various Egyptian kings, the, the Hyksos, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly, who I, I mentioned in the book, um, who were the shepherd kings of, of Egypt. So shepherds, kings, they, they tend to go hand in hand, Jesus Christ being the, being the, the good shepherd himself. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah well it, it, yeah because it, it's interesting you mentioned jewish text i think there was um i i can't remember i can't remember which scholars exactly i, I remember reading something a while ago uh that there are sort of parallels between sort of the original sort of genesis narrative with cain and abel and demuzi in general because if you think about the narrative it's essentially two brothers uh competing for divine favor and mm-hmm. the god eventually favors the shepherd over sort of the agriculturalist and anything like that right yes um so like that there are instances of that going back to i guess the stories of the right mm-hmm. and, and, and narratives around that so i mean um how does how does this understanding of this narrative of the shepherd i guess apply 
I guess, to practice and, and engaging the mysteries, I guess, in this, or engaging Mesopotamian mysteries as a whole, I guess, because we are, I guess, moving towards, and I was opening it. If we're opening this up as a practice and, and sort of moving into sort of being initiated in, into Demuzi's current, as, as an example, how does him featuring as a shepherd kind of affect us in our practice? How does it affect how we can approach him as, a, as an entity or as an archetype? So I know that most people think of of the idea that uh, sheep are are you know ignorant and and easily swayed because you know we have we we have that as a as a term to denigrate people that you know go with the flow, but within the context of the book, taking Demuzid's role as a shepherd into consideration, the the supplicant, if you will, or or the 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 would-be ritualist approaches Demuzid as though they were a proverbial sheep. So whether that would be a ram, whether that would be a ewe, whether that would be a lamb, they are petitioning Demuzid as a shepherd to usher them into his fold and from there slowly build this this practice. And um, in fact, uh, along with shepherds come come hounds, and we have the hounds of Demuzid. Uh, that are featured in the descent myth as well as the other myths and, and compositions relating to his his role as a shepherd uh, those actually factor heavily in this book as well so they there is a, a ritual in the text that evokes those dogs that are in his retinue if you will and there are seven names that that are ascribed to this dog or to this hound that speak to that dog's character that in the descent myth or his his death myths where he's being pursued uh, the the hound is referred to his his noble dog his shepherd dog his lordly dog and his faithful dog so it's it's interesting how you know all these things come together and potentially lend themselves to this initiatory praxis that is a continuation of his cult. Mm. Yeah, because I, I guess because his cult, I, I, I guess this is the it's a it's a columns conception I find in especially with modern occultists in general. Um, people have this they have a perception sometimes that cults are very static things that you know, you're you're worshipped in the temple and then like it doesn't really spread out from there. It's it's kind of an interesting thing. But Demuzi is, is as well as being a Sumerian god and and eventually go you know being translated over to Akkadian, his cult spread like far and wide like it was yes. a really popular cult like there are um e even the the aphrodite adonis variant in greece is essentially a continuation i think of his cult right absolutely and what's interesting is it varies from city to city from settlement to settlement so in a way and this is this is perhaps the the best analogy to use it's no different than modern aspects of catholic folk practice mm. involving the the virgin mary you have uh, mary as the as the redemptrix the great redemptrix but then you have mary as a pastoral figure uh, that's that's appearing to to children in in mountainous villages like our lady of fatima so you know it's it's interesting how how these these phenomenal cosmic beings or these sublunar beings or intelligences however you want to to describe them have 
you know, these various roles in, in the grand scheme of things and in the small scheme. Mm. So, yeah, well, I, I guess as part of the discussion of the roles, then I guess that that's kind of the, the function that like epithets and names serve as well. Mm -hmm. like when you're referring to them by different epithets or different names, you're essentially calling up different aspects of them or different roles that they're working. Right. With. Right, because you mentioned the um like the Simon Necronomicon a bit earlier as well. It's like like one of the big but the big popular parts of that is is the fifth uh, the fifty names of murder towards yes. the end, right? So I mean, is is there any kind of um I mean, I mean is is that actually like an actual Sumerian practice or was that like just for the Necronomicon? Like, do we have a similar kind of idea and practice where you are sort of calling the different names and epithets of deities and in that kind of invokes different versions of them in Sumerian or Mesopotamian stuff? Not necessarily, and and in that regard, that was largely a, a modern conceit because the ancient Mesopotamians, the the fifty names of Marduk, the whole emphasis of the the fifty names as a whole, um, those are solely informed by the Enuma Elish or the Babylonian creation epic. So, in order for him to get what he wants, which is supremacy over all of the gods, the gods have to agree to his terms and conditions. So <laughs> I will take over the the charge and uh, slay Tiamat and deliver all of all of my divine brothers and sisters uh, to, you know, to greater glory. However, I would like to have 50 names of, of power. And essentially, that is actually religious propaganda that that whole myth was written by his priests to elevate him over all of the other gods so while one would look at those 50 names as names that belonged to to you know 50 other gods at the end of the day they're essentially just titles that he he holds and marduk is is marduk regardless of what name you refer to him as mm -hmm. um but I do actually have a, a similar uh, setup, if you will, where Dumuzid is, is ascribed all of his epithets that are historical in in nature. So, mm. yeah, so I, I suppose, like, I, I guess in practice, it, it would be something similar to like the Orphic hymns, for example. So, like, when yes. you're wanting to, you know, recite. Well, I guess like, in terms of like a very practical ritual, for example, I guess in the same way that like an astrological magician or a grimoire magician might recite the Orphic hymn while they're imbuing a talisman or calling mm -hmm. down a spirit or intelligence, I guess you can kind of do something similar where as part of your devotional practice, you will read uh, like mythic narratives or you will recite the epithets and the Correct. and and whatever they're doing, right? And that kind of brings you into sort of connection with the... With right. the so how, how does that kind of... How does that work in practice? Do you do? I mean, do you like 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 the incense? Do you like sprinkle the circle or whatever it is, and then begin reciting? Or is it is there a, a wider sort of deeper theological process to it? Or so in my own practice, and in fact, a, a lot of elements of that practice um, are are included in rod and ring. So there is the presentation of incense offerings, and if it's going to be a major ceremonial ritual working that isn't devotional in nature then I will incorporate other offerings and, and other, you know, other requisite duties. But the, the usual methods or the, the usual procedure would be uh, prostrating before the, the shrine idol, um, striking my chest seven times and, 
and doing that, reciting various um, various passages or liturgical phrases, if you will. And then, of course, there's the presentation of the requisite offerings, the acknowledgement of the deity, and then the lengthy prayer that that goes with it. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, are there I, I, are there any kind of uh, sort of astrological correspondences to the, to this kind of thing? So I mean, we know, you know, especially with Babylonian ideas like the Babylonian astral, astral religion and astral magic was a major major focus. Are, are there considerations of like astrological timing and and sort of a similar system of like planetary hours and things like that to when you're performing this kind of thing, or is there any, or are we not going really to focus on it? If it's something that that I feel would require it, like if I were to do a major working for someone who asks for a ritual for whatever for whatever reason um, then i'll take those various things into consideration as far as the planetary hours are concerned the day of the week um, the the various uh, astrological correspondences for that day of the week um, so for instance in in one ritual that i've that i've done um, it involved uh, dream divination and I made sure to perform that ritual on a Monday in the hour of the moon and dedicate that to the god Nana or Sin who is the lunar deity who oversees you know all sorts of, of various domains including uh, what historically would have been considered wisdom which we would now understand it to be both astronomy and astrology so We've got those wild correspondences there that you know if if we squint they come into play. Yeah. So I mean, how how does I, I guess well like working with let's say Babylonian astrology how, how does it differ from something like Hellenistic astrology I guess because like, the associations and things will be obviously different because like the gods will be different that kind of thing. But are there any kind of distinctly I guess like astral magic practices or anything like that or all sort of astral religious practices that rely more on specifically Mesopotamian astrology as opposed to like things that we can take from Hellenistic. So as far as the the Babylonian astrological uh, praxis is, is concerned, it's largely omens oriented. So if Saturn is in the sky and, you know, there's a, a specific phase of the moon, then, you know, obviously that's not a good sign because uh, Saturn was also known as the Black Star and uh <laughs> was rather ominous yeah, and as, as uh, it still is yeah as it still is exactly um and then we have appearances of astral bodies such as sirius uh which was also considered an an ominous star and was identified with uh, deities like gula or bao who uh, had had some interesting uh, traits that were similar to Inanna at one point in time. So yeah, it really depends on the phase of the moon. You know, if we were to look at things historically, what the king was doing that day or that month, or you know, what what the uh, what the festival was and, yeah. and the timing. So that's interesting. So, so, so I guess did the king, like all the king's activities factor into divination as well? The king's activities did factor into divination because we have to look at the king, not just as a ruling figure, but he in many ways was symbolically a high priest. So he was the, 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 <clears throat> excuse me, the initiate to the deity's mysteries you know it was it wasn't just the priest it was him 
the priest and the deity so we've we've got that that dynamic that yeah. that exists there too hmm. yeah because i think the uh, like sort of the previous generation of scholarship when they were looking at things like the sacred marriage uh all sort of sacred marriage ceremony it was a very popular thing in kind of 20th century scholarship to believe that like sort of the king in his role and guides the high priest would usually have ritual sex or intercourse with the high priestess of anana like during sort of the, the you know the, the, mm -hmm. the kingship ceremony or anything like that from what i've heard that's kind of fallen out of favor of it more like in recent scholarship in place of kind of it's like a symbolic act rather than an actual yes. physical like intercourse was going on like that exactly but there is there is that interplay there between the high priestess of anana and i guess the king as in his role as high priest or sort of shepherd of the people right mm -hmm. And then Correct. There's, uh, there's like a, an interplay between those two, I guess. So how did, I guess, how did the high priest, because I, I guess in that sense, if, is there, like, I'm, I'm picturing it now, is there like, is there a connection where does, I guess, Dumuzi have kingship associations as well, in the sense that if, if he's the shepherd, then yes. and, and people, is there a play on that where, where the king is sometimes associated with Dumuzi or as a mask with Dumuzi as well? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So with that, I guess, how does the, would the king and the high priestess of Inanna then have reenacted the mythic narratives as, as part of their religious duties? What's interesting is while we do have we do have uh, textual sources, we have quote unquote data, if you will, that uh, that we can refer to. As far as the the ins and outs and the intricacies of these rituals. We don't really have much to go by other than the the nature of this the ceremony being uh, symbolic as a whole. There is one text, however, and I, I cannot remember the title of this text, but it is included in uh, Benjamin Foster's um, Acadian Anthology, and the, the title of that anthology is Before the Muses, but it does describe the king dressed in wool he's he's wearing a woolen mantle and as he approaches the temple where the high priestess is uh, there are various individuals who are like picking pieces of of or tufts of wool off this mantle but it then switches perspective to the high priestess who is to receive him and alludes to her her ambiguity and her hesitancy and um you know just just the whole i've never had sex with a guy before what do i expect from this mm -hmm. so you know and and what we anecdotally what we have to also take away from this is historically and this is attested in myth as well historically there were classes of priestesses who were forbidden uh, from having sex and from from having children so they could adopt but they were forbidden under you know threat of death from from engaging in any intercourse with a man whatsoever hmm. yeah so i think because there, there are i guess this is, this is the one uh, i guess one thing to, to talk about or, or open up a bit about just the different classes of ritual specialists across sort of mesopotamia in general so mm -hmm. i mean um we talked about, you mentioned priestesses there in different classes of priestesses. Um, do we have kind of similar things for like exorcists and priests, even of, even of the Muzid in general, of different classes of ritual practitioner who who specialize in different things in general? Yes. So we have the 
the Ashipu priest who was the the exorcist. Um, we have the uh, lustration priest who was responsible for purification rites. We have individuals who are referred to as the Gala or uh, the Galatora who were priests that were responsible for singing lamentations. Uh, we also have the, the retinue of priestly figures that are known as the Kurgara, who wielded weapons. Um, as far as the, the width and breadth of their role, it seems to largely be uh, ceremonial in that regard. So they are uh, bearers of weapons in ritual processions. Uh, they also shed their own blood in these ritual processions. So uh, it's it's interesting because if you look at the religious practices in the Middle East and into Southeast Asia, especially with uh, with Islam and specifically the the Shia Islamic sect, uh, we see aspects of ritual mutilation and and bloodshed in in various. Uh, various, I don't want to say cultic practices, but various practices mm. um, as far as lamenting uh, their, the nephew of the prophet, if I recall correctly. Mm. Yeah, because I'm, I'm recalling even in um, sort of archaic, you know, Greek Croatia, for example, you know, about the, the, funer the funerary laments in, in, in Greek stuff. Uh, it's a similar similar idea, like as part of the prothesis procedure, which is like the funerary procedures for the Greeks. <laughs> The women of the family, usually the head woman, so like either the wife or the mother of the deceased person, she will usually tear her clothing and sort of beat her chest at the at yes. the, the, the you know the funeral as part of the kind of the wailing and the, the lamenting procedure, mm -hmm. and that's kind of the origin of sorry, actually the Goetic tradition as well. Where like the Goetia has its origins in funerary laments uh, before it sort of eventually becomes you know associated with medieval stuff. Right. Um, but it was actually the familial funerary lament. So it was kind of like it was kind of considered like the informal funerary lament mm -hmm. in, in opposition to the thronos, which was the uh like the professional mourners, I guess. Right. Um, I mean, do we have any any kind of parallels to that in Sumerian stuff? Like like in terms of funerary magics or funerary rites or anything like that, were there professional mourners that would have also had a similar role or those professional mourners would have been classified as as gala or galatura right. priests so they would all be in that same class yeah. um but you know we have we have aspects of the the cult of the polis or the cult of the city and then we have the individual cults of the household so mm -hmm. what's good for for the city may not necessarily be be good for the household as a whole so yeah, and I, I suppose well, when we're talking about household culture, like do we that we won't know, I guess archaeologically, like the full extent of household practice as opposed to like institutional practice because it doesn't survive as much, I guess. But um, would they have had uh, like household shrines and their own statues in there if they were doing personal practice things like that as opposed to yes, yes, and and with regards to the household cult, it's usually aimed at venerating the ancestors and ensuring that the ancestors are recipients of frequent libation offerings and and food offerings and the god of the house that would be worshipped would typically be the patrilineal god of 
your distant ancestor who was worshipped from one generation to the next or perhaps if it's not just that one god it may also be members of of that god's divine family yeah i suppose, I, I suppose that that may overlap with with city gods as well like if you're, mm -hmm. if you're part of a city and things like that and, and yes. families in little they are generationally living in the city mm -hmm. but you know generations and that if the god is a founder of the city then you will be in the sort of in the in the entourage of your or your god, I guess, and you're worshiping yes. it in all temples and at, and at home and stuff as well, right? Yeah. So, I mean, how does I, I guess outside of the focus of, of veneration, I guess would the would the ritual practices and, and devotional practices more or less be the same outside of the focus? So like in the home, they're focusing on the ancestors and the patrilineal god, uh, whereas in the city you know, they're focusing on, on maybe the city-wide deity or the, or, you know, national deities or anything like that. But in how they're approached, would they more or less be uh, similar methodologies and things like that? Oh, definitely not. Because okay. with okay. regards to worshiping the god as the deity of the city, there's a great deal of pomp and circumstance. Mm -hmm. And the, the average citizen wasn't necessarily a participant. They were largely an observer right and you know looking at at things from afar whereas you know if if we were to look at say carnival or or mardi gras where you know there's there's this procession and everyone's having fun and it's wild and you know there's an there's an air of frivolity that's one thing but then if we were to look at things from the the uh, state cults perspective it would be very solemn uh, procession of the deities and i'm sure that uh that those who did not act in accordance with that uh <laughs> with with the custom would probably uh find themselves uh find themselves at, at the uh the end of a of a stick yeah a, a very very awkward long stick very yeah. awkward long stick yeah because I, I think um going back to the real quick here um because I think in the I can't remember if it's the Babylonian calendar or the Sumerian calendar. There was a in the like there was a month during the summer months. I think where like, at least where the Muzi is conceptualized as being in the underworld, where it was kind of like a, there was a state in, like a state instituted or like month wide mourning for him mm -hmm. during this month. I think yes, and like a a state wide or like a region wide uh, procession and and funeral sort of lament essentially for a whole month. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, and that would be. Uh, we actually find that month captured in the liturgical calendar, the, the liturgical Jewish calendar, as the month of Av, originally known as Ab or Abu. And uh, basically, when the grass had withered and died completely, um, there was a uh, state-sanctioned statewide morning where people would publicly wail in the streets for a period of three days and uh after that that time had ended then you know they would have a, a period of festivity and return to their their day-to-day -day lives mm. yeah that's interesting so i guess i, I guess the it's we're coming up on now here we could start beginning to wrap up um the other, uh, I guess the other thing I was curious about, we talked a lot about the Muzi as, as the shepherd, I guess, or, or his archetype as the shepherd. Um, I want to talk a little bit now towards the end here of his other archetype of, I guess, the Muzi as, as being in the underworld or like mm -hmm. some kind of underworld deity. Um, because obviously, like, usually like we focus a lot more on, on, on all his kind of multifaceted nature before he goes into the underworld, you know, as a result of kind of Inanna's, um 
I guess, pointing the finger or accusation and then him getting dragged <laughs> off by demons, essentially. Um, but w- what is kind of the mythic narrative around his descent into the underworld? Like, does he feature as a kind of an underworld god? Is he syncretized with, like, Dagal, for example, or anything like that? So he is featured as an underworld deity. There is a composition, an elegaic composition, concerning a historical king, uh, Ernama, also known as Ernamu, who dies descends into the underworld bearing gifts and what's interesting is demuzid is mentioned second to arishkagal as receiving offerings and nergal is mentioned afterwards so it was it was attested during that period in in history where demuzid was conceptualized as a deity who wasn't just bound in chains um, yeah. <laughs> waiting to be waiting to be free <laughs> yes yeah. and what's interesting is in addition to to that uh, designation or that uh, that appointment as being second to a Gagal, we also have incantation texts and um and various hymns in which he is petitioned to take restless spirits into the underworld with him He's petitioned to take sickness into the underworld because it was believed that disease and sickness originated in the underworld and either were brought into the world of the living by demons, or if there happened to be a crack or crevice that a deity was, wasn't mindful of, it could sneak its way up and mm. uh, wreak havoc on humanity. And uh, what what's interesting is, in addition to to death and disease as far as as these spirits go there's another incantation where the petitioner is requesting that demuzid intervene and essentially act as their safeguard and command demons to afflict the tormentor of the supplicant so there it's it's interesting because there's there's this very liminal uh, liminal aspect to Demuzid that you know we have him as the shepherd we have him as as an aspect of the king and and in this instance we have him as a necromancer and an exorcist and i am i'm very firm in this stance that uh while hecate appears to be the 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 figurehead of of the current zeitgeist with you know yeah, all... the witchcraft movements and everything exactly exactly with the witchcraft movement we have other deities like demuzid who embody these same traits these same tropes these same these same roles wear the same masks so i think it's it's always important to to give reverence where reverence is due when you know <laughs> we've got this one goddess who's got all of the attention whereas other gods and spirits are like hey guess what we've Wherever been here too yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's I, I suppose yeah like I, 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 we sort of touched right into the beginning right but I, I guess it just speaks to you, you can't you know you can't go to you know the religious and folklore section of a lot of your local store and pick up a text on on sumerian stuff right and stuff it, it's just not I mean, even even yeah, it's like I'm thinking, I'm trying, I'm trying to think now of like other other than your book or, or like any academic texts, like well, even then, like again, when I when I think about Sumerian or Mesopotamian religion and ritual, it's predominantly all academic texts mm-hmm. by default to like there's very very few like 
public, I, I, I you know, quote unquote public books out there that aren't heavily academic and, and heavily rooted in like academic scholarship and things that are often hard to read and things like that right and readily accessible and readily affordable i don't yeah, know sorry. if i'm, 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 I'm talking about brill yeah <laughs> if you can afford like 200 bucks for a single book then that's oh fun. my gosh and what's what's wild though is despite the fact that there are all of these crazy expensive books with limited runs you know we we talk about occult publishers and you know the the inflated price of a book but clearly no one's paying attention to these university presses releasing yeah. oh, it's, it's <laughs> $300 for yeah. you know for a paperback uh but what's great is a lot of these academics are are putting their work out there as downloadable pdfs if, if yeah. you were to go to websites like academia.edu you know you'd be surprised just how many authors have actually put whole books out mm. that they've written that are you know comprised solely of their thesis or you yeah know, joint yeah joint no, I, I, i've seen the same thing and you know like it's also one of those funny things where i always get where, where, where people come to me and ask me, ask me like about this all the time it's really hilarious but like one of the pieces of advice that i often give people is like academics love sharing their work in general they're like authors like they love being spoken to because like most people when they get into academia they do it because they love the subject they love yes. talking about this stuff right it's like i often found like i, I could be slightly biased because i have my background in academia anyway but all my lecturers, even like even though I graduated a, a couple of years ago, I'm not actively involved right now. Like, I can still email any of my lecturers and be like, "Hey, I saw your new book is out. Like, but it's like like three hundred <laughs> bucks. Can, can, can you send me like some chapters?" And I'm like nine times out of ten, they're like, "Yeah, sure." Like it's fine. It's like if you instead of to, chapters, it's the whole book. <laughs> yeah, and then, then then I wake up the next morning, it's like, like I have like a, like a two gigabyte email attachment. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> but it's like it's a really funny thing that people are like oh you know academic material is so inaccessible it's like mm, no the, the like the publishers are quite inaccessible but if you find the author and you email the author usually they're quite happy to share their stuff with you yeah. most of the time. Yeah. I would say that more time, more more often than not, it's the the occult authors that are inaccessible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, like find tell you what, no, I I like I. I, I went through this whole binge of like going into like Taoist magic for a while. Like I was really mm -hmm. into like Chinese stuff. So like I, I, it's another thing similar to like Mesopotamian stuff where it's like outside of like outside of China, like you don't really have a lot of stuff on Taoist magic, right? right. Or Taoist folk magic, right? And I was, I was kind of looking at it and I found like two or three occult authors and they are impossible to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Like I, they went like I, I tried to get on Twitter and like like tweet them, but now like since Musk has like changed how Twitter works, like you're unless you're verified, <laughs> you can't message people. I'm like, it's like it's just it's so difficult to get a hold of authors. It's like it's such a shame because I feel like like it's such a wasted opportunity for like good interactions and things. Yeah. Well. Like if you're as an author, if you're coming on podcasts or you're you know, having an active Instagram account or, or active social media or whatever, like you can share extracts and things like that and you could just build right. it's a community in general right it's like that's that that's kind of the big thing there where it's like i i think community is a big part of of mysteries in general I absolutely often overlooked i think or like there is i think it is kind of a fad at the moment or it has been a fad for the past few years like the solitary practitioner you know like self-initiation and anything and don't wrong like self-initiation can work absolutely i'm not disputing it uh, in any way but like i think there is I, I, we, we talk about this at the beginning, but there is something that is gained in in person, 
you know, mm-hmm. like you can't yes. describe those experiences where you come together in person and you experience part of the mystery together by doing communal ritual. You, know, you can't get that just from reading a book or just from doing self-initiation. I think there is something that I guess it, it, it connects you to that kind of communal, like ancestral lineage almost. Like the, right, the, right. Ancestral, right. Where you're interacting with with something and bouncing off the other person and that creates like an atmosphere in general that you work together right and it's like how i guess to end i guess on this here but uh working with people in person like you have i mean what i i know it's hard to describe but like some of the main differences between sort of doing work on your own and then doing it in a communal setting like how does how does the atmosphere kind of shift and how does the energy kind of shift so when you're practicing by yourself, when I'm practicing by myself, you know, there, there are always these, these moments where there's either synchronicity or perception or, or some, something that happens. And I'm always hesitant to, you know, take it at face value mm. because, because of my background growing up in in the charismatic Pentecostal faith where, you know, everything is a sign from the gods or, or yeah. everything is a sign from God. And, and right. in this case, it's like, everything is a sign from the gods. Well, not necessarily, but there are instances in shared ritual where everybody has the same experience. Everybody witnesses the same phenomenon. Everyone has that same visceral response. And at the end, when, when we hesitantly share those experiences, everyone's eyes get wide and they're like, oh my God, yeah. that happened to me too. Um, in fact, you know, if, if, if I may, there was one incident where several individuals were participating in, in this ritual and, you know, it was to consecrate an item that was dedicated to a Mesopotamian God and we were to through the course of this ritual essentially mimic a rainstorm in order to consecrate this item and at the end of that ritual there was a shower that started and that shower became a uh, a very torrential uh, storm and that storm lasted for three days <laughs> there were parts of the city that were flooded so it's it's interesting when when these synchronicities happen and they're witnessed by more than one individual and more than one individual is affected by these yeah. by these synchronicities yeah you know i'm i'm smiling right now i'm trying so hard not like not to smile and give it away, but like <laughs> I have to put this out there. Like I, I want to put it out there. Like 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 again, just for reference, me and Sang we haven't met each other. We like we haven't like I, this is the first time I'm hearing about it. Um, but believe it or not, uh, that kind of experience was exactly the experience I had when I was doing uh work with the Fifty Names of Marduk in the Necrosome Necronomicon as well where I was doing work with it, or I was doing, I can't remember which which name I was working with now, but when I, it was a couple of years ago when I was working in it, or I was living in London, I was uh, I was doing a consecration ritual or a devotional ritual, and I was using some of the 50 names of Marduk, and the mm-hmm. first thing that happened was a, a rain shower started, and then it just kept going for like two days. And when I when I saw it on like the news, it was like, like it was a completely like clear thing for the two yeah. days. Like, the weather forecast was completely clear. Yeah. You know? And then like, 
it was it was just weirdly synchronistic in the sense of like I was I was a solitary practitioner back then, so I did, I didn't have do it in, in group or anything like that. But as soon as I finished like the incantation calling the names, the rain started. And like and it, it was one of those situations where like there was no clouds, there was no cloud in the sky, it was a completely clear night. Second I finished speaking the incantation and the calling the name, it starts and it doesn't stop for two days. And like all the weather broadcasters in London were like, this? Like, like, <laughs> like, like it, it's a completely like like the weather forecast was completely clear for two days and it's like it just like i i did this ritual with the 50 names of marduk and that's exactly what happened like the rainstorm started you know and it sits there and it makes me think i'm like yeah like this this seems like it's a thing like, I, it I, is I, a thing I, I could definitely see like a theophany of like rainstorm or anything like that being relevant to like a shepherd-based society or like an agro-pastoral yeah. society, right? Because the raining, raining or whatever, it increases crop fertility, right? So I could, I could definitely see how that would, I guess, be one of the most prominent signs of a deity's appearance or deity's mm -hmm. like interference or presence, whatever like that, because that's one of the ways they can show themselves, essentially, yeah. like, one of the main ways. But that's just, that's really interesting you mentioned it. And now I'm like, wow, okay. That's very validating for me. <laughs> well, here, here's here's two other instances that will validate your experience. <laughs> in a ritual that I led for Paganicon, which involved Marduk and his 50 names. In fact, the, the attendees would recite those names mm. in succession. And at a certain point in the ritual, the fire alarms in the hotel went off and there was no cause for it. No cause for it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. That same ritual was performed with the local pagan group that I was a part of that was active for several years. And we were outside in, in uh, very temperate summer weather. It was at night and we had torches that were lined up around the perimeter. We had offerings and, you know, candles lit. And as soon as a certain point in the ritual happened, this wind came out of nowhere again stuff the the forecast was clear there there was yep. no no uh, bizarre weather pattern in sight and at that key point in the ritual where the the battle between marduk and tiamat was you know ritually reenacted um this wind came out of nowhere blew out all of the torches except for one tiny candle that's that the flame had diminished but it was still persisting throughout the entire thing just fascinating how these things happen yeah god <laughs> yeah like you yeah because you can't even like you can't you can't even make it up it, it, it's like it's too specific i think like like the fact that it happens almost on command yeah like it's too specific to be like because like i'm i'm the first to like discount this stuff a lot of the time I, i'm i'm one of the first to be like no 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 like i have to be like <laughs> put, put everything i experienced through like three layers of like well this could be like why it happened this could be why it happened whatever it is like i take like a three-pronged approach where, like i have to try and disprove whatever like, experience i have i try and disprove yeah. three times at least like through other means before i accept like there's some like weird like some like theophany whatever it is it's like every time i've tried to do that i failed <laughs> because like, every time i try and do it like my experiences are just too weird to be like okay yeah it's it's either too synchronistic it's either too on command working or the way like a visionary experience comes through or some like alteration of conscience comes through it's so weirdly consistent with how like ritual experiences are described in liturgical texts or anything mm -hmm. like that 
what that I haven't read before working with them. You know, I've had that with with not not much with um, Mesopotamian stuff, but with Egyptian stuff especially, where I'll go and do a ritual from like the the Greek magical part or something like that, and I won't read like the extra comments at the end. I'll have some experience with it, then I'll go back to the papyri, I'll read the papyri, and the magician will be describing my experience exactly. Yes, and I'm like, I didn't read that before <laughs> that, and now I'm like something something's like coming in together. I'm like, huh. I did a working, <laughs> I did a working from the PGM, the uh, ritual for, to encounter the serpent faced God. Yeah. And it was so fascinating because in the room that I was in, it was, it, you know, there, I have pets. So, you know, I, I hear the pets walking around outside mm -hmm. of the room. And suddenly when I started the ritual, it got so quiet that i thought what are my pets up to because yeah. a quiet pet is like a quiet child there's yeah, there's well. something you happening need to know. <laughs> exactly and the room became incredibly quiet and then there was this creaking sound like the whole house was settling and it just went around me the entire time and i was just i i, I was at a loss for words but then i thought okay let's let's go back and and you know look at this this again and you know try and piece piece it back together and yeah same thing happened it's like what is yeah. going on here <laughs> yeah. but i i guess like again like that i guess that that's one of the ways you experience mysteries like that yeah like you read you go through it you read it you're like oh okay there you go like there's actually some like validity <laughs> to what i'm going through here you know it's, it's a whole it's a whole thing i guess but it's fun. Um, so I guess if, if we if we're moving towards wrapping up, then yeah. Um, obviously your your new book on Muzid is out now with Anathema. Your previous one, uh, Rod Ring, has also been out for quite a, for a while now. I think yes. right. Um, but in general, I guess how to cycle back to one of the first questions I asked like an hour ago. So for people wanting to get involved with kind of the Mesopotamian mysteries and, and begin to be initiated into Mesopotamian traditions or, or want to start working with, with traditions like that. What are some kind of things that you suggest as, as first steps, I guess, familiarizing yourself with the myths and things like that, right? Definitely familiarize yourself with the myths. I know that many people don't want to, don't want to dig into mythology because for some it's, you know, a dry subject or or not exactly interesting but look at these myths not as scripture which many people do and and unfortunately that does a disservice look at these myths as glimpses as insights as to how these these gods were conceived or how aspects of these gods were conceived by those who worshiped them and also don't just focus on the myths look at the liturgy that is is written and dedicated to these gods because it takes glimpses of those myths and expounds upon them and we find we find out more about the the character of these gods that that are conceived by by their historical worshipers yeah amazing so you are also at the end there so you are you are on instagram uh at Robin ring uh and again your book is out so for people who want to connect with you they can do it there uh and yes get your book as well um so is there anything else so what, what's your kind of any next projects or anything you're currently working on that you want to share 
Yes, next project I actually have since the the occult world does not seem to have much in the way of representation of the Mesopotamian gods. Uh, <laughs> taking it upon myself to develop idols that could, I don't want to say be mass produced, but produced on, on a larger scale. Um, so yeah, look out for that soon. That's, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting. So if there's anyone out there who has a 3d scanner and a 3d printer and wants to help with this project, please hit me up online at rod and ring on Instagram or email me rod and ring at gmail.com. Um, I'm also pretty responsive on Facebook. You just search for me as Samuel David and there I am. Brilliant. All right. Well, we can probably call it there, I think. So, Samuel, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's been a pleasure.